And he, that is Elijah, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Lord, I've had it. I I turn in my prophet's badge. I'm through. It's over. I'm not even better than my father's. I'm a nobody. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, in which the Apostle Paul shows that despite Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the nation's Messiah, God has not rejected Israel, and as a matter of fact, we will see that one day Israel will indeed return to God. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy gives four proofs that God does indeed love Israel and seeks to redeem it. Look around this congregation. Where are the Jewish believers? In fact, let me ask you a question. Are there any Jewish believers here today? If there's any Jewish believer, would you stand up? Not one. Not one in this service. Not a single one. Does that mean that God is done with the people of Israel? May it never be. Now, of course, for the Apostle Paul, a simple no is not sufficient. So he begins with four proofs, first with himself. Paul argues, if God was done with the nation of Israel, then I would not be a Christian. But Paul says, listen, I am a Christian and I'm Jewish. And so he writes here in the second half of verse 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen, he has already documented from the Old Testament that by nature, all of us are spiritually dead. And so he said in Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks God, not even one. Well, if there's none who seeks God, not even one, then God must take the initiative. The first step must come from God. God has to first initiate with you. He must put the spark of interest. He must open your spiritual eyes so that you would want to know Christ. And so if the Jews, like Gentiles by nature, for everyone who is descended from Adam is spiritually dead, and if God had totally abandoned the Jewish people, then there would be no Jewish people who were Jews for Jesus. But Paul says, look at me. And of course, when you think of him and his conversion, it's absolutely remarkable. You read his letters and you say, oh, he'd be a great guy to have dinner with and discuss theology with. Seems like a delightful man. But of course, that's not how the early church initially thought of him. Saul of Tarsus, the name just made people shudder. When Luke describes him, he said, now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You met him in a dark alley, you'd run as fast as you could in the opposite direction. But he is a trophy of the grace of God that God can save anyone in any condition. Remember, here was a man who had a bitter hatred for Christians. He tortured some, he imprisoned some, and he was responsible for the death of dozens and dozens of Christians. And yet God saved him. And when, of course, he is finally saved, the early church doesn't even trust him. They think this is some feigned conversion. He just wants to get on the inside track so he can take out some more Christians. And of course, it's not until the son of encouragement named Barnabas, which is what his name means, where he steps in and he defends Paul that he's given a church a chance for service. 
So the first piece of evidence that Paul gives is personal evidence. I am proof positive, I am personal proof that God has not abandoned Israel. But there's a second piece of evidence he wants you to see, and it's theological proof, theological proof that God has not abandoned Israel. Look now at the first half of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now there's that word foreknew again. You might want to turn back a page or two or just listen carefully. If you remember, we saw it first in Romans 8 in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of, of his son, that he, his son, might have first place among many brethren. And so the subject of election, or as it's popularly called, divine predestination, is an important biblical doctrine. Every true Bible-believing Christian believes in the doctrine of election. The question, though, is what do you mean by election? You're going to see words like foreknew and elect and predestined throughout Scripture. Those are good words. God gave us those words. The issue is the definitions that some people pour into those words. Now, if you remember, there's a certain group of people named after John Calvin, we call them Calvinists, who say that when God created you, he either created you and elected you for salvation or created or elected you for damnation. And so when they see the word foreknew in Romans 8.29 or in our text this morning, they say it means to choose. And so they would understand Romans 8.29 in this sense. Those whom God foreknew or chose or selected or elected will be saved, these are the ones that God has ultimately predestined to become like His Son. Now, we saw that the focus of the ninth chapter is not personal election, but national election. But because they start with the theological presupposition that the church is the new Israel, that there's no significance for Israel, and the reform movement today, that's the essence of what they believe. And so one leading Christian recently said that there's no difference between Uganda or Israel in God's mind. Well, there is a difference. There's a big difference. And so the Calvinist sees personal election in view rather than national election. Now, again, God elects individuals. The Bible teaches that. Ephesians 1.4, you know it. Just as He chose us, Eglegomai, we get our word elect from it. Some translations say, just as he elected us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless. So the Calvinists would say, there it is. You see, even before you were born, before the foundation of the world, God chose some to be saved. And in choosing you, he chose others or overlooked them, some would say, to be damned. Now, if you're going to be true to Scripture and you read a verse like Ephesians 1.4, you must say, I believe in the doctrine of election, because this verse plainly says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. The issue is not, does God elect? The issue is, on what basis does God elect? On what basis does He choose? And so words like foreknew and foreknowledge and the, the different verbals are very important. For the Calvinist, the word foreknew means to choose, to elect. But what does the word mean? Well, if you just looked up a simple definition in Webster's as seen here on the slide, it says it means to have earlier knowledge, to know beforehand. So the common meaning of the word to foreknow is simply to know beforehand, to know something in advance of it happening. And that's true not just in English, but in Greek. 
And that's a good English rendering because it's actually made up of two Greek words bled together. The word pro, we get our word pre, and it means before. And the word gnosko, gnosis in English, it means knowledge. So when we speak of foreknowledge, we're speaking of to know something ahead of time. And so we use in medicine the term prognosis to describe prior knowledge to predict a course of the disease. Now, apart from Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, there are many other usages beyond dispute where the word means to have prior knowledge. Let me give you some examples. Paul in Acts 26 and verse 5, he's sharing his testimony before King Agrippa. And he says, so then, all Jews know, there the word is gnosko, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me. And there the phrase known about me is the word progonosko. It literally translates, they foreknew me. Uh, They knew me before. It's a little awkward to render it that way in English, but that's literally what the Greek text says. They knew me before for a long time if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. He's saying they had prior knowledge of what I was like before I was converted to Christianity. Everybody, all the Jewish people knew me. Same word is used in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. For he, speaking of the Lord Jesus, was foreknown. There's the word, prognosko. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. God is reminding us. God knew beforehand because God knew that man would rebel. God knew that he would redeem us through the death of his son. Peter uses the word in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross. He's reminding his Jewish brethren that the death of Christ did not take God by surprise, but it was prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, nothing takes God by surprise. God never learns anything. He doesn't say, hey, did you see that? Gabriel, did you see that? Oh, God never does that. God never learns anything. God knows everything. God has advanced knowledge in all that will take place. And so throughout Scripture, there are numerous examples where the word foreknowledge, which they cannot debate some of these examples, it means to have prior knowledge. But when it comes to Romans 8.29 and other verses, they want to read into it something that is not typically found. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks of Christians who are chosen. There's the word elect. Who are chosen. How? According to the foreknowledge of God. You see, I am chosen for heaven, not arbitrarily that God chose me to be saved and someone else to be damned. No, the reason God could choose me before the foundation of the world is because God in his advanced knowledge knew how I would respond to the wooing work of God the Spirit. He knew that I would receive his son. And so God chose me on that foreknowledge, on that basis. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, somehow, many people believe that because God knows that all that will take place, that God is responsible for all that takes place. But keep clear in your thinking that the term foreknowledge is not an act of God in Scripture. It's an attribute of God. 
The fact that God has foreknowledge just underscores that he has knowledge of all that will take place. But God's foreknowledge does not determine what will take place. This is true of people who die and go to heaven, and this is true of people who die and go to hell. God knowing certain things does not in any way change your free will. But let's just say for the sake of argument that suddenly God discovered that before the end of this service, you were going to become a Christian. If God learned that today, and by the way, open theism, which has become very popular and now is printing books on evangelical presses and being sold in Christian bookstores across America, that God learns things. It's an absolute heresy. But if God learned something today, then he would have added to his previous knowledge. God would have changed. But God doesn't change. The omniscient, omnipresent God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God must know all things because it's in his very nature, because he knows the past, the present, and future. And so God lives in eternity, and we live in time. And so God does not describe himself as I was or I will be, but as the great I am. God sees the present and the future as if they were one. And God in his foreknowledge sees those who will respond to the gospel. You say, well, again, pastor, if God knows in advance, then that means I don't have any choice in the matter. No, 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 not at all. Remember that famous man, Edmund Haley? There's a comet named after him, Haley's Comet. In 1705, Edmund Haley said that there was going to be a comet that would come by the earth in 1758, and then he said every 76 years thereafter, that same comet would come by, and he was right. Now, did he cause that to happen? Of course not. He had advanced knowledge that it would happen, but his advanced knowledge did not cause it to happen. Last year, NASA said that there would be six comets that would come by planet Earth in this calendar year. Four have already passed us by. The fact that NASA knew that, did they cause it to happen? Of course not. Please understand that God has foreknowledge does not mean that God forces you to receive his son. There is a big difference in the Bible between God drawing someone to himself and someone coming to Christ against his will. Now bring it back here to Romans 11. That was an important foundation for what we're going to look at this morning. We've studied already in the ninth chapter that God made an eternal, everlasting covenant, an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. In Genesis 17, 7, we studied that verse. God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That's what God said. In choosing them, God said in Deuteronomy 7, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so I would ask you first, did God elect Israel to be his chosen nation? Absolutely. So let me ask you a second question. When God elected Israel... Did God foreknow, did he have prior knowledge that Israel would be faithless and that Israel would initially reject his son? Of course, he knew that. He foreknew it, verse 2 says, and he's going to remind us in verses 8 through 10 that he prophesied this would happen. What is the apostle Paul trying to tell us here in verse 2? 
It's an answer to the question that he asks in verse 1. Has God abandoned? Has God forsaken? Has God rejected Israel? And his point is very simple and very significant. If Israel's rejection of Jesus took God by surprise, then God would have reason to go to plan B. But God was not surprised by what Israel do. God foreknew. He knew in advance what the Jews would be. Nonetheless, that foreknowledge did not change the mind and heart of God because he made an everlasting covenant with Israel. When I was a kid, sometimes on occasion, we would suffer from something called Indian giving. Um, kids, you haven't heard this term, but you know, if you gave someone something and, and then you said, I, I want it back, they would respond and say, but you gave it to me. And then we would say, no, that was an Indian gift. And when they gave it back, they would say, well, you're an Indian giver. Now, again, I don't hear kids using that phrase anymore, maybe because it's not politically correct. I don't know the actual origin of the expression, uh, but I do know it was not a slur against American Indians in my day any more than calling the Washington Redskins uh, a demeaning term. But I do know this, that God is not an Indian giver. And he's going to affirm and underscore this when we get down to verse 29, where it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. How do you know that you are eternally secure? How do you know that when God gives you, according to Romans 6.23, the free gift of eternal life, how do you know that God might not take that gift back? How do you know that you might not lose that salvation? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not an Indian giver. When God makes a promise, he will never go back on that promise. This is an unconditional promise that God makes. So how can Paul say that God has not rejected his people? In the first, there's personal evidence. Look at my life. I too am a Jew, a Benjamite, and I'm a believer. Then he looks at the theological evidence. When God made his covenant with Israel, God in his foreknowledge knew that Israel would reject God's son. But now he gives a third piece of evidence, what we might call historical evidence. Historical proof that God has not abandoned Israel. Now here in the second half of verse 2, all the way down through verse 4, he brings some historical evidence by dipping back into the life of the prophet Elijah. Look now, if you will, at verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you will see there's a change in typeset, which tells you here in the New American Standard that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. So let's go back and look at the quotation in its context so we can appreciate what Paul is saying. Go to the book of 1 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. That's about dead center of most of your Bibles. And then scan to the left and you will come to the book of 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me bring you into the context of the chapter. It's been a great day in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. 
He has just faced off with an entire nation of people who were in apostasy. They were worshiping the false gods of Baal and the Asherah. And he called fire down from heaven and God answered his prayer. And then he personally slew 450 prophets of Baal. And then in answer to his prayer, he had prayed before that it would not rain and the skies were like brass. It did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and God brought a great downpour. Add to all of this, he then runs a marathon. He outruns uh, Ahab's chariot all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And so King Ahab gets home. He's had a really bad day. And he goes and he talks to his wife, Queen Jezebel, that demon-inspired person who brought this cult worship, this child-sacrificing God called Baal into the people of Israel. Now let's walk into the context of Paul's quotation that he's going to make to us here in Romans 11. So let's start in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab comes home, he says, Jezebel, honey, our prophets, they prayed for six hours that God would bring rain down on the sacrifice. They even cut themselves in earnestness, but Baal didn't hear. And and Elijah, the prophet, he prays for about six seconds, and God comes down, and he totally consumes a soaking wet sacrifice. And so now all the people are saying, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And on top of that, he slew all of our prophets. Well, when Jezebel hears that, she's infuriated. Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She says, in essence, if I don't cut off your neck by tomorrow at this time, if I don't kill you in the next 24 hours, may the gods kill me. I hate you so much, I'm willing to put my life on the line. So King Ahab, he comes home with this report, but Queen Jezebel is so hardened in her sin in spite of the evidence that you cannot argue with it, she's confirmed in her unbelief. She's given clear proof up there on the top of Mount Carmel that there is one true God and that her gods are false gods, but it does not change her mind. Verse 3, And he, Elijah, was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He runs, he leaves Jezreel, he runs through Judah, through the southern kingdom, all the way to Beersheba. It's a 120-mile trip. I mean, think about this guy. He's totally intimidated. This great prophet who the day before stood up to an entire nation of unbelievers. You would have thought that he would be standing on a mountain of unshakable faith. But he's not. And there's a lesson, of course, that we can learn from it. He's deeply discouraged. And discouragement comes when you forget what God did yesterday in the midst of your circumstances today. Yesterday, his mind and heart was filled with Jehovah. Today, his mind is filled with Queen Jezebel. His perspective is distorted. He has forgotten what God has done. He's just come off of a great victory there on the top of that mount. 
But this woman with her, her intense hatred and threat gives him the Jezebel jitters. This one who calls her God Baal, a God that he knows is not the true God. He's afraid. He's afraid of her and what she might do to him. And there are a lot of Christians today who put God in the past. I've been in a lot of churches when people say, oh, God used to bless here. People used to come to Christ. We used to regularly baptize people. We used to see a lot of people get saved. We used to have an impact on our community. Those were the great old days. And sometimes I'm tempted to say, is God dead? Is God living somehow in the past? Is God not somehow sufficient for today? And I want to tell you, he is sufficient for today. And he wants us to know that you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. He is good for yesterday and he is good for today. And when you lose focus, discouragement will set in and you will lose perspective. Now notice verse 4. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness. That's another 15 miles according to biblical standards. And he, that is Elijah, came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Lord, I've had it. I, I turned in my prophet's badge. I'm through. It's over. I'm not even better than my father's. I'm a nobody. And he's feeling sorry for himself. He's having a pity party. Now, have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? I have. I thank God for some of the things I prayed for and he said no to. And I don't think Elijah really wants to die. Take my life, Lord. I don't think he really wants. If he wanted that, all he had to do is say, here I am, Jezebel. And she would have gladly accommodated him. He's just feeling sorry for himself and he wants to have a pity party. So he brings God in. Verse five, it's a picture of God's amazing grace. He, Elijah, lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I mean, I wish I had that angel food recipe. He went another 200 miles to Horeb. Then, verse 9, he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He's still running, and now he's hiding in a cave. But instead of rebuking him, God very gently asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I want you to notice his response because Paul quotes it in Romans 11, verse 3, our text. Look at verse 10. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Lord, let me tell you what I'm doing here. I've worked hard for you, Lord, but this congregation that you've given me is just as carnal and as obstinate as they can be. I preach sermon after sermon after sermon, and they don't really listen. They're following false gods. They've torn down your places of worship. They've killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one who's left. What could God possibly do with Elijah as he wallows in self-pity? 
Monday, we'll look at two lessons the prophet was able to receive in the midst of his valley of discontent. If you would like to hear today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Today's program was entitled, Has God Abandoned Israel? and is program ROM54. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on her Rare But Real podcast, available in the Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And Monday, we'll conclude our look at whether God has abandoned Israel as we continue to search the Scriptures. <laughs> 